0: text today, from Luke chapter 11, verses 14 through 26, will help answer a few questions for us. There are some questions that we might have about demons, demonic forces, that will be addressed in this passage of scripture. Questions about Satan and his influence on people that will be answered here. Then also, I think there's a key focus in this passage that we'll hone in on at one point regarding true conversion and regarding the importance of the gospel of Christ. So we'll examine this today. Luke chapter 11, verses 14 through 26. Speaking of Jesus, and he was casting out a demon, and it was mute. So it was... When the demon had gone out, that the mute spoke, and the multitudes marveled. But some of them said, He cast out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Others, testing him, sought from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a house falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Because you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebub. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places, and seeking rest and finding none, he says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when he comes he finds it swept and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Our text starts out with an exorcist performed by Christ. He casts out a demon. Very little detail is given regarding this particular miracle. It simply says, he was casting out a demon, and it was mute. This is probably not referring to the demon being unable to speak, but that the demon was causing the person whom it indwelt to be unable to speak. So it was, when the demon had gone out, that the mute spoke, and the multitudes marveled. A little while back in one of our sermons, we did a little myth-busting. One of the myths that's out there is that if you have any type of physical illness, it's because you have a demon oppressing you. So here's a biblical picture. Illness can be a result of demonic possession or oppression But it is not necessarily the result. You don't necessarily have a demon if you are ill. Let's look back to Luke chapter 4 for a moment, which makes this clear. Luke chapter 4, verse 40. When the sun was setting, all those who had any that were sick with various diseases brought them to him and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many crying out and saying, You are the Christ, the Son of God. You see the picture there? They bring many people who are sick. Jesus heals all of the people who are sick and out of some of these people out of many demons cry out or come out crying but you notice it's not the demons came out of all of these people that were healed so the conclusion is therefore that yes there was demonic possession that was causing illness or physical handicaps or other problems in that day but not everyone who was ill or couldn't speak or couldn't hear whatever it may be had a demon now I do believe that there is probably less demonic possession today than at Jesus' time Jesus has spoiled the principalities and powers there has been a triumph but yet it is very much the case that we still wrestle not against flesh and blood but against principalities and against powers So, are demons still active in any way, shape, or form today? I believe that they are. As you look at the New Testament Scriptures, after the church was established, there are still statements about Satan prowling about as a roaring lion seeking whom he would devour, about the power of the evil one and his influence in the world. So, I think we should never bring this all back down to no Satan... No demonic influence, no spiritual battle in that sense anymore today, uh, as we look at this. But I think myth busted that anytime anybody is ever sick, it's because they have a demon. That wasn't even the case in Jesus' day. Notice then back in Luke chapter 11 what's the response of the multitudes? It says, the multitudes marveled. Then in verse 15 though, it says, but some of them said, and others testing him did such and such. So many people marveled at the power of Christ here. But remember, breathlessness does not equal belief. Just because somebody marvels at the truth And even the truth of Christ and the truth of what Christ has done does not mean that they are a child of God truly. Breakfastness does not necessarily equal belief. There are people even today who might for a time embrace the gospel and believe that Christ has died for them but they are that seed that falls on on the ground of the stones and no root and poof, they dry up. Or perhaps the thorns that grow up and choke them out. So you see here, some of them said he casts out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Others testing him saw from him a sign from heaven. So some of these folks go on to say, okay, well yeah, he did it. We can't deny that he did it. But he's doing it by the power of Satan. Beelzebub being another name for Satan here. He has done it by the power of Satan. Other people say, okay, yeah, he did it, but if he's going to prove to me who he is, I want another sign. I mean, what have they just seen? They've just seen a miraculous event. They're saying, give me a sign from heaven to show me who you are. And Jesus is going to go on and we'll look at this uh, down the road here, what sign Jesus gives to them. And he says, it is the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he's referring to himself three days, three nights in the earth, like Jonah in the belly of the whale for that time period. So some here attribute the power to Satan, others demand an even greater sign, if you will. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a house falls. If Satan also divided is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Because you say, I cast out demons by the What's Jesus doing? He's using some very sanctified logic here. He is saying, Your arguments are absolutely absurd. They do not follow. Non sequitur, I think, is the Latin phrase. So Jesus points out their utter foolishness here in this instance. As we think about this you know Satan may be damned and he may be the father of the damned but in this instance Jesus is saying he's no fool. He's not going to turn on and kick out and destroy and consume his own followers who are doing his will by oppressing these people. That's what Jesus is saying here Satan. He's no fool in that sense. He knows who's on his side and who's not. So Jesus is saying, your argument is absurd. It's ridiculous. Yes, Satan may prowl about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, but he's not going to devour his own servants. And you know, even though Satan isn't motivated by true love in any respect, godly love, what's he motivated by? Hate. Hate. He hates Christ far more than he hates his henchmen. So he is not going to turn on them when they are pursuing hatred of Christ. That's what Jesus is pointing out here. And he presents a parable here to prove this point. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? But, well, the parable, I'm sorry. Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. A house divided against a house Falls. Jesus is saying, civil war brings down a nation. Nations that are constantly at war internally, a kingdom divided against itself, ultimately is not going to stand. They probably even would have been thinking about their own kingdom of Israel. Remember, it started out in the kingdom era as a united kingdom. And then what happened? Boom, it split. And then those two factions, Judah and Israel, were warring against one another. And God brought them to desolation as a result. Yet He did not forsake them in His great love. He did not forsake them. And their returns during the kingdom of Cyrus, they were allowed to return to the land. Notice here also he says a house divided against a house falls and he says if Satan also is divided against himself how will his kingdom stand he's saying this is just common sense you guys know these types of things it's just common sense if a kingdom is constantly warring against itself or divided it's not going to stand it's not going to have great power if there is dissension and division with a household that household is not going to stand It's not going to be strong if it is being destroyed from the inside out. I want to take a little excursus, rabbit trail, for just a moment. Let's go on just a little bit of a rabbit trail. Jesus is giving us a proverb there when it says a house divided cannot stand. So let's think about this for just a moment in ways that Scripture would give us some practical application of that proverb, a house divided cannot stand. One is don't marry an unbeliever. The Scriptures are very clear about that. People are free only to marry in the Lord. Do not be unequally yoked. If we're considering getting married, if you're considering getting married, I'm not. Already am. Don't even for a second consider it as an option under any circumstances for any reason to marry a non-believer. It is not ever an option. Never. Not an option. House divided cannot stand. If one is the child of Satan and one is the child of God, that is not a spiritually strong united household. Now yes, there might be some people in that type of marriage. And God can provide grace to the believer in that marriage. And the believer can be a testimony, a witness to their spouse. So don't despair. And people are not to despair if they are in that situation because of past choices or perhaps they were both non-Christians and one person is saved by God's grace don't despair (laughs) but if you're in a position of deciding about marriage it's not an option it's not I think I can convert them I think I can straighten them out that's not an option don't think like that don't think like that Uh, Second application. A church divided against itself cannot stand. There's a household, the household of God within the church. There should be promotion of biblical peace within the local assembly of the body of Christ. house divided cannot stand. So, the admonition to us, turn over to Hebrews chapter 12, beginning with verse 14 it says here pursue peace have you ever pursued pursued something were you in pursuit think about that that's an active word isn't it Pursuing. I think of my dad, you know, he had uh, hunting dogs. He liked to hunt rabbits with beagles. The beagles would pursue the rabbit. I mean, there's a pursuit. Just running after, after, after the rabbit. If there's any sense of it, it's pursuing. And think about this: pursue peace. We're cleansing peace we know that it's there it's ahead of us we can't see it maybe but it's there and we are after it we're pursuing it we're running it down we're pursuing peace with all people we're to pursue peace with all people the qualification there from Romans we saw it this morning was as much as is possible as much as life within you and holiness without which no one will see the Lord Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. Notice that. We're to pursue peace lest we fall short even of the grace of God. Lest we prove ourselves in essence to be a reprobate. We can't see God without peace and pursuing holiness. God's children are peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. And what does it say? Lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble. We're not to let these roots of bitterness pop up. We're to nip them in the bud, as Barney Fife would say, nip it in the bud. We're to pursue peace. We're not to let that bitterness pop up. What does that look like practically? First of all, we need to remember love covers a multitude of sins. And so we need to have a patient and a loving attitude toward people and not be easily offended. That's one way we can pursue peace. But then, if something does begin to come between us, and we don't seem to be able to reconcile that issue either in our minds, or it appears that another person hasn't reconciled that issue, this means we must go to that person. A house divided cannot stand. Summit Sovereign Grace Baptist Church... If it is divided, if we are divided from one to another and we have these roots of bitterness springing up within us and we're not nipping them in the bud and if we can't get control of that, we are not going to someone and seeking to make things right, a church can fall just like that. It can split just like that. It happens all the time. It happens all the time. So what's the admonition to us? Pursue peace. If any wall of division comes up, if any root of bitterness springs up in our heart, don't just keep watering it and feeding it with fertilizer. Nip it in the bud. Go to the person and discuss that issue and pursue peace. Lest you be a contentious person and bring division to the body of Christ. So house divided cannot stand. We're to nurture the unity by the grace of God. Now, I'm going to talk about moralism here before the sermon's over. Doing things for the wrong reasons, okay? We are doing this for the glory of God by the grace of God. But uh, let's look at Psalm 133 for a moment. Beautiful psalm. Beautiful psalm. On the positive side of things here. Psalm 133. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Can you say that? How good and how pleasant it is to dwell together in unity. How good and pleasant it is to be a part of Summit Sovereign Grace Baptist Church and to be able to dwell in unity with my brethren. It is like the precious oil upon the head running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. It's like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. That anointing oil which anointed the great high priest was considered one of the, probably the most precious ointment and oil in that entire culture. So think about something that is the most beautiful scent to your fragrance, the most beautiful type of oil or whatever it may be. And that's what this was like to those people. And that is saying that this unity is like this most beautiful, beautiful anointing oil. It's like the dew of Hermon, these beautiful, glistening drops of moisture in a parched and a dry land. That's what unity amongst brethren is like. It is beautiful. It is glorious. We are to nurture that here in this church. We're to nurture that unity by nipping in the bed those roots of bitterness, but by promoting love and kindness and grace toward one another. It's a beautiful thing to dwell in unity. But a kingdom divided and the house divided cannot stand, as Jesus says here. One more statement on this. There's an old statement. It says, in... The essentials, unity. In the non-essentials, diversity. And in all things, charity. That is a motto here at Summit Sovereign Grace Baptist Church. In the essentials, unity. Those things that are essential to the faith. Those things that are essential to sound Christian doctrine, those things that are absolutely essential, the things at the very core of the gospel of Christ and relationship with believers, we strive for unity in those areas. And if we're going to draw battle lines, we're drawing the line on an issue that's essential in its nature. But in those issues that are non-essentials, then we recognize that there is diversity in the body of Christ. It's okay for us to disagree on something. It's okay to have a difference of opinion on non-essential issues. We're going to look at one of those in just a moment. That Jesus even points to from the text, in one respect, I'll apply it from the text, Then, in all things charity, as believers, we are always to display the love of God. Jesus says, love even your enemies. Now, that true love may mean just someone. But it's still love. And it's done in a loving way. In the essentials, unity, non-essentials, diversity, all things, charity. The farther we move away from those things that are the core of the Christian faith, the more open we are to the fact that we could be wrong. And the rest, fiercely we fight and debate our particular point. It must be that way. It must be. There are so many, so many churches, pastors, preachers, teachers, people who will make their list of the teachings of men, and they will live and die for that list. And that is ungodly and it promotes the spirit of antichrist in the church. And it promotes division. We must be cautious of that. We must be cautious of that. Okay. The rabbit trail has ended. Let's go back to Luke. And we're in verse 9 of chapter 11. Verse 19 of chapter 11. Jesus now makes this statement, If I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. Who are the sons referring to there? Well, there are differences of opinion on this. Some people believe that the sons are the Jewish prophets of old. Personally, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Those men are called the fathers in the scriptures, not the sons. A second view is that when Jesus says, "If I cast out demons with a finger, or if I uh, cast out demons by the by whom your sons cast them out," but the sons there are referring to Jesus' disciples who are casting out demons. Quite frankly, I don't think that that fits very well with the context either, because those men these Pharisees would be condemning right along with Jesus himself, wouldn't they? Because they're doing it in Jesus' name. So it's not very likely that that puts the context even. More than likely, this refers to the Jewish exorcists of the day. The Jewish people during the day that were trying to cast out demons in that day. And what Jesus is saying here is since nobody can cast out Satan except by the power of God Himself, since Satan is not going to cast out Satan, if you are going to condemn anyone for casting out demons, but you don't condemn someone else for casting out demons, that that last group is going to point the finger of judgment at you and say you are being inconsistent you're not behaving righteously now maybe they I say inconsistent maybe they're being consistent in their own wrong view but basically he's saying here if you're going to condemn me for casting out demons you've got to condemn your own folks That are doing the same because nobody can cast out demons except by the power of God. You can't cast out Satan by the power of Satan. So be consistent. And in the final day, if you're not consistent in that, and some of your own people are truly casting out demons, they're going to point the finger of judgment at you and say, You should have been consistent. We cast out demons by the power of God, so did Christ. Nobody can do otherwise. Nobody can do otherwise. I think that's what they're saying there, or what Jesus is pointing out. If you're going to be consistent, you've got to condemn even your own people who are casting out demons as well. If you're going to be consistent, righteously consistent, you're going to need to condemn across the board. Okay, I want to consider something from a parallel passage. Now look over at Mark chapter 3, verse 22. Mark chapter 3, verse 22. Have you ever wondered about the unforgivable sin... Have you ever wondered if you committed the unforgivable or unpardonable sin? In the parallel passage, Jesus addresses this question. Look at Mark chapter 3, 22 through 30. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of the demons, he casts out demons. So he called them to himself, said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? Sound familiar? Now, jump down a little further. Verse 28, Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men, whatever blasphemies they utter, but he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation. In another passage, Jesus even says, you can blaspheme the Son, but if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you will never be forgiven. What is that? Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Uh, a prevailing position on this, uh, a prominent idea, is that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is someone who hardens himself against God their entire life and ultimately refuses to be saved by the Spirit of God. And thus they won't be forgiven. Well, is that true? That someone will not be forgiven if they harden themselves against the Spirit of God their whole life? Well, yes, that's true. That's that, uh just an absolute truism that that's the case. Personally, I don't think that that's what this is addressing here. I think that no one today can commit this unpardonable sin. I think that this was unique to the time of Jesus and that this unpardonable sin was those people during the time when Jesus was actually walking the face of the earth attributing Jesus' power to cast out demons to Satan when that was really by the power of the Holy Spirit. And thus they were blaspheming the Holy Spirit himself. But you see, Jesus is not walking the face of the earth today. And He is not casting out demons today. So no one can say... Jesus is casting out demons by the power of Satan, the prince of the demons, and thus blaspheming the work of the Holy Spirit in him. So, I don't think that anyone can commit this unpardonable sin today. That's my position or stance. I think this is a unique situation. Just like I don't think that we command people that when you go out on missions, you, you have to go two by two. You have to take no extra money in your in your wallets and no extra change of clothes. Remember, Jesus gave those instructions to his disciples. But that was a specific time, specific place, specific group of people on a specific task. And I don't think that specifically applies to us today, neither do I think with this. I think this was something that only those at that time could do when they actually pointed at Jesus and said, in their minds or verbally whatever form it took you're doing this by the power of Satan when it was really the power of the Holy Spirit Okay, back then to Luke and to verse 20 Jesus says but if I cast out demons with the finger of God surely the kingdom of God has come upon you Surely the kingdom has come upon you. The finger of God here refers to the power of God. During one of the plagues in the time of Exodus, people proclaimed, this has happened by the finger of God. So it's referring to the power of God. And Jesus is saying, if I do this by the power of God, with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. So let's ask this question. Was Jesus casting out demons by the power of God? Yes, he was. So the question is, has the kingdom of God come? In the sense that, in whatever sense, Jesus was speaking of it here. Yes, it has. Notice that phrase there, the specificity, how specific this is. Surely the kingdom of God has come Upon you, Notice the prepositional phrase? It has come upon you. You that are there. It's not saying here that it is drawing near or that it might come. It says it has come and that it has come upon you. So, in one sense at the very least, this text is teaching that Jesus inaugurated the kingdom of God when he was walking on the face of the earth there and then through his redemptive work. So, at the the very least from this, I think that we should believe that in some form the kingdom of God has come and that Christ is reigning over that kingdom today as we look at other passages of scripture that put this all together. Now, I realize that this is a highly controversial subject, the kingdom of God. Remember that little phrase that I mentioned a little while ago, kind of a motto that I said is a model here at Summit? In the essentials, unity. In non-essentials, diversity. And in all things, charity. I think we need to apply that to this specific thing here let's consider it for a moment the, this idea of the kingdom of God is uh, it's very much a, a subject that comes into consideration when considering end times events doesn't it as it should be as it very much should be but here's how we consider this no matter what our eschatology is whether we're premillennialists in our eschatology or amillennialists in our eschatology post don't have time to go through all those phrases but those are some different camps of eschatology and I'm speaking generally speaking pre-mill, amill, post-mill no matter what our eschatology is we can believe that this verse is teaching that the kingdom of God is present in power in the very working of Christ as it was carried out there, and that he has inaugurated the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. One of my favorite commentaries is written by Gerald Bach, and he's a dispensational premillennialist, and he very strongly promotes the idea that this text is saying that Christ has inaugurated the kingdom of God. And that that's what this text is teaching. The kingdom of God is upon you. But then he also does believe there will be a further manifestation of that kingdom in the literal thousand years with Christ reigning on the earth. Considering that again, in the essentials unity, non-essentials diversity, all things charity. That should affect how we think about the subject of eschatology. Very much so. The farther we move away from the absolutely essential issues, the less we should break fellowship with or draw a hard and fast line of debate. And the more charity, the more diversity we should accept and the more charity should be put forth. The farther we move away from the absolute essentials in these issues. Some of the non-essential issues, issues that have been debated in the church for a couple of thousand years, that have always been considered orthodox beliefs and not heretical beliefs, Are things such as, will there literally be a 1,000 year reign of Christ where he physically and literally reigns upon the earth? It's never been considered a heresy to say yes to that or no to that. That's an area of diversity within the church. But what if we are talking about the question of is Jesus Christ going to return in an actual bodily return? That's an essential. We draw a hard and a fast line on that one. That one cannot be denied. It must not be denied. There are those who might. Another there would be more in the realm of essentials. Is that there will be a resurrection from the dead? When Christ will raise the dead. You look at First uh, Corinthians fifteen. It says so clearly there that our resurrection is wrapped up in Christ's resurrection. If Christ didn't die, we're not going to rise from the dead. But because Christ died, arose. I'm sorry death burial resurrection because he rose we will rise so ergo you are outside of the faith if you don't believe there's going to be a resurrection of the dead in that sense that's an essential even of salvation in that sense not not just an essential of orthodoxy or what the church should believe but that one's even an essential of salvation you have to believe that there's going to be a resurrection from the dead and then the eternal state that we're going to live on in eternity. Heaven for those that are saved, hell for those that are lost. Jesus says here, if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. So I do believe that the kingdom has been inaugurated and Christ is ruling over the kingdom of heaven today. He is ruling over the kingdom of heaven today and I think all Christians can echo with unity that statement. But then, whether or not there's a disagreement on whether he will actually rule in a literal thousand year reign on the earth or whether or not we are in that kingdom era and when he comes then there will be the judgment and the eternal state all at that time. We can discuss that. And there should be healthy... Debate on those issues. Healthy debate means not becoming angry and breaking fellowship with other believers over issues like that. But being willing to sit down and talk and challenge and work through the text of Scripture, that's a healthy church environment. That's what we want here. We we don't want to think that pursuing peace means we never disagree with anyone on anything. (laughs) That's... That is so unhealthy. There's no iron sharpening iron there so we never become sharp. There's no muscles being exercised so we don't grow strong. You see, the ideal is a healthy debate, a healthy dialogue on these issues. Knowing what the essentials are, we all stand on these and then being willing to debate and discuss as we move farther away from those but doing it in love and in charity and not breaking fellowship. Debate is not a fight, folks. Debate does not equal fight. It can be a fight. Debate does not equal contention. It can be contentious. But healthy debate is fantastic. It's good. Dr. Martin Ray Jones said, There is nothing like theological debate to sharpen the mind and increase our knowledge of theological truths. I think he's right. You guys have those things in your mind, don't you? Where you and another believer in a loving way sat down and had different opinions and you guys wrestled it out and you remember that far better than you remember some other things, right? It's a good thing. It's a good thing. Okay. Let us finish. Back to verse 21 then. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. He who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters. Who is the strong man here? When Jesus says, "If a strong, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, but when a stronger than he," comes upon him. You you get the picture here? Satan's the strong man. Who's the stronger than he? That's Jesus. What was Jesus doing here in this test? He had just kicked out a demon. He had just defeated Satan in that respect. Jesus in his work on the earth was stripping the armor off of Satan and spoiling Satan's goods. He He is busted into Satan's domain. And he is distributing Satan's goods. Jesus is the stronger man. You know, there's that verse in Scripture about the kingdom of God advancing. It says, The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Think about that for a moment. A lot of times we we read that or think about that. Gates of hell will not prevail. And... we think of that means that hell's forces marching out are not going to triumph. But are gates an offensive weapon? I suppose if you're Samson, they can be. But, gates are a defensive mechanism. They're saying the kingdom of God so the, 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 the gates of hell will not prevail against the kingdom of God. And it says there are those that are even violently bursting into the kingdom of God and the gates of hell will not prevail against the kingdom of God. So what does that mean? That means that if Jesus, the stronger man, wants to bust into hell and steal somebody out of hell itself, he is going to do it. That means that his work that he was spoiling the principalities of powers. He was destroying Satan. He is bursting down the gates of hell and he is freeing the captives of hell. You remember that song we listened to by Steve Green? He's bursting through the walls with laughter. Listen to the demons shout. Jesus is the stronger one. And he's defeating Satan. So... Then Jesus goes on to say, if you don't gather with him, you are going to be scattered. So Christ is the captain. He's our captain, whose spares is the strong man, Satan. And this idea of scattering, you know, I kind of picture a, a banner, a flag. You know, the armies rally around the flag. There is Jesus, our captain. And he stands under his banner. Those who do not rally round to him, they will scatter. But those who come to him under his banner, they will stand. There are only two sides. You're either for Christ or you're against Christ. Myth number two. First myth, all demonic or all illnesses demonically caused. Second myth, Christians can be possessed by a demon. That's a myth. And that myth is busted by this Scripture. You think about that for a minute. Jesus is the stronger man. And the Scriptures say in Romans chapter 8, if we have not the Spirit of Christ, we are none of His. So Jesus indwells us. Can Satan come in and strip Jesus of His armor and kick Him out of His territory? Absolutely not. Greater is He who is in us than he who is in the world. So this idea that, de- that demons can possess a Christian and that Christians have to kick demons out of each other, it's not biblical. If you are Christ and He is in you, there is no way to save can gain a foothold. Now, we can listen to the lies of Satan and we can follow his path. We can listen to the lies of our own lusting hearts and we can follow the wrong path. But Satan cannot come in, a demon cannot come in and, and dwell us because Christ is there. And true conversion... Coming to Christ truly and gathering around his banner involves trusting him as the captain of salvation. It involves truly belief and trusting in Christ. Okay, the final three verses here. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest. And finding none, he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that man is worse than the first. What is Jesus pointing out with this? How does this connect to the rest of the text? I think Jesus is saying here that being freed from demonic possession is not enough. Someone who's a non Christian can be possessed by a demon. That demon can influence them in certain ways and towards certain sinful practices, whatever may be. Just having the house swept clean is not enough. The Spirit of God has to come in. The captain of salvation has to be there to protect the house. I think that's what Jesus is pointing out here so when an unclean spirit goes out of a man he goes through dry places seeking rest and finding none he says I will return to my house from which I came notice he, he thinks of it as his property as his domain he says well I'm going to go back what does he do here in this illustration that Jesus is giving he launches on to seven other demons who are even more wicked than him and they all go back and torment this person and that person's fall is worse their, their condition is worse than it was at first people can't just get their lives cleaned up but not come to Jesus you see how important that is? Just sweeping up out the house is not enough. There has to be new residents. Jesus has to come in and protect. So people can start cleaning up their lives and this by way of illustration and application. People can start cleaning up their lives and start living right. And so those looking at them from the outside it may seem, hey, this person's turned over a new leaf. This person's got it put together. They were drunk before. They're sober now. They were beating their life. Now they're opening the door for them. This person is doing the right stuff. They've got their life put back together. But if Christ has not come in, and if Christ is not the captain of their life, and the Lord of their life, If they have not truly believed and placed their trust in Christ, then theirs is an empty house. And their state ultimately will be far worse than it was previously. In this life it may mean that when they die and face the judge, that they will be cast into the the deeper part of hell even. And the fact that that they began to try and do things righteously but not for the glory of God may even stand to condemn them more deeply than they would have been condemned before. So what is the point here? And this is so important to us to remember. We've, by way of application today, I brought a lot of things back to this church, Summit Sovereign Grace Baptist Church. What are some key principles that we apply. One is that principle of in the the essentials unity, non-essentials diversity, all things charity. Another is the importance of being aware of and watching out for, guarding for, falling into moralism. Falling into moralism. Doing the right things for the wrong reasons. Getting lives cleaned up but not bringing in the Gospel and what the Gospel truly is. that it's by God's grace that we stand. And that what we do is to be ultimately for the glory of God. There are other good motivations that exist, but our ultimate motivation is for the glory of God. So we need to beware of Moralism. And we must cling to the gospel. And the gospel should inform us about how we're to act. But here's the final application. And uh, let's tune into this. This is very important. We need to let the gospel of Christ inform our listening. The gospel should inform how. We listen to preachers and to teachers. The gospel should inform what we are listening for and whether or not we are going to become a follower of a particular preacher or a particular teacher in some instance. Again, I'm applying this by drawing from this idea Jesus says it's not enough just to clean out the house to get swept clean in the life But that Christ must come in. Preachers and teachers all teach why you should do what you do. They may not tell you directly. They may not use those words and say, this is why you should do this. But they all teach by what they say why you should do what you should do. In other words, that category of motivations they're using motivations when they preach to you or when they teach you. I do that. A lot of times I'll point out the specific motivation. What did I just say a minute ago? What's our chief motivation? To glorify God. I expressly stated that. I don't have to expressly state that for that to be the case and to be driving everything I say. So let the gospel inform your listening. Always be listening for the motivation. That the preacher or teacher is giving you for doing what you do. And beware of that motivation being humanistic and not God centered and God glorifying. And you would be amazed how many preachers, and some of them I don't even know if they realize what they're doing always only give certain motivations that are more man-centered than God-centered when they're telling you why you should do what you do. Here's the way this might practically come out. If you're listening to a preacher, listening to a preacher, maybe it's a sermon audio, maybe it's a local church website, maybe it's a television, maybe it's cassettes, whatever it is, and the motivation that you're hearing over and over and over again is just do it. Just do it, just do it. And no, they're not being paid by Nike, but it's always just do it. That's humanistic. If that's the only motivation, yeah, the scriptures say children obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Do it because it's right. That's a godly motivation. But if all you ever hear is just do it, just do it, just do it, that's a moralistic type of preaching. That's not godly. Gospel-saturated preaching. Okay, here would be another one: Do it so people will like you. Is that a gospel motivation, a godly motivation? And yet you listen to radio programs, and I, I listen to one, and you know parents telling their uh, children, relaying an experience about training their children, and you know you hear things like uh, explaining to your children that think about what other people are going to think of you if you do this wrong thing. We should be concerned ultimately about what God thinks. And if we're teaching our kids, no, you know, don't you dare, ever. And no, I better never catch you in this household going out to a party and getting drunk because think of what your church family
1: or what the neighborhood
0: and community will think of you. Don't ever use that as a motivation for your kids. Don't use that. That's a humanistic motivation. It's teaching people to be a people fear and a people pleaser rather than a God fear and a God pleaser. Another one would be do this so you can get this from God. That's it. There are some instances scripturally where that's accurate. The Bible does speak about rewards and gives promise of reward. But you know what? There's a local church, and I won't won't say what the church is. They have a web page. I've listened to at least five of their sermons. And the only motivation that I've heard behind all this, and it's never brought out directly, this is why you should do this, and this is what my main motivating factor is, but you know what it is? Do this so that God will bless you. Do this so you will get this. Do this so that this happens in your life, God is the motivating factor behind everything that's said. I've never heard, even implied, do this because we exist to bring glory to God. Okay. Finally then, and you guys are laughing, right? (laughs) Finally. yeah right pastor <laughs> now this is the last point and this all ties in with what I've just been saying I appreciate you guys' patience but this is so important this is so very important all preachers and teachers teach why so let the gospel inform your listening but then they also teach how. They teach how you can do what they want you to do or even what you should do. And again, it should be gospel-saturated. Gospel-saturated. How can you do this? You can only do these things that are pleasing unto God if you are a child of God. If you have been bought by the blood of Christ. If you are resting in Christ for your salvation. If you believe upon Christ and His finished work. You can only do what is acceptable to God then. And it doesn't matter if you get your whole life cleaned up and you live a perfect life on the outside. You are damned. Unless you believe in Christ. Listen for how they tell you to do what you should do, even, in some instances. One final illustration. And I will mention this program from the pulpit because I want to warn you against it. I believe it is so far off that I want you to know it and I want you to be aware of it. It's a program that is on KCMH comes on 12 o'clock till 1 it's called New, New Life Live where these men who purport to be using Christian counseling techniques rarely ever give anyone the gospel their approach is not gospel saturated their motivations that they give are are not so frequently not God-glorifying. They have people call in and they call themselves a ministry. I've listened to entire programs where they don't even give somebody the Word of God and then they read a Bible verse at the end and say something like, this is what we're all about, about giving people the Word of God. (laughs) But they don't do it throughout the entire program. But, People calling for 15 minutes, they hear one side of the story and they pretend like they can actually know that this person isn't lying to them about their husband doing such and such and such and such and they give this person counsel. It's just, it's absurd. It's not biblical. You know, it says if you don't hear the whole matter, it's a folly and shame to you in the scriptures. They can't hear the whole matter if they can't get the whole picture. You know, a wife calls and it says, my husband does this, this, and this. And they say, okay, well, it's because he's obsessive compulsive or it's because he's uh, codependent. You don't even know if she's telling the truth. You never even met the guy, you know. But here's here's where it gets even worse and it's so sad. They don't even ask the vast majority of people whether or not they even claim to be Christians. And then they treat them like Christians but they don't give them the gospel. They just go on to give them moral advice about how they can clean up their lives. And you want to know how bad it can get sometime? On one program that I was listening to, the counselor on the program asked, in one of the rare times, he asked the some year old girl on the phone, are you a Christian? It was dead silent for about five seconds. You ever heard dead silence on the airways for about five seconds? Gets your attention, doesn't it? <laughs> and then you hear this girl say, "Well, um, I don't know. I, I don't think that I am." And you know what the counselor did? He said, "Oh, oh. Um, well, I was just using that as an illustration." Now here's what you need to do to get your relationship with your boyfriend worked out. Boom! He went straight to that relationship. Is that gospel motivated? That was a prime opportunity. I mean, she's saying, "No, you know, I I don't think I am a Christian." Wow! What an opportunity! Our program being broadcast probably to millions of people over the internet and in hundreds of stations around the country and around the world. What an opportunity to present the gospel. We need to beware of just cleaning up the house. But not considering the gospel. And that Christ must come in. We've covered a lot of ground today. I pray we've seen the glory of Christ and His work the nature of the Gospel and how important it is. I pray that we can rejoice in what Christ has done for us and what He has done in triumphing over Satan on our behalf. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the day. Thank You for our Lord Jesus and His work. I pray that You'll help us to be gospel-saturated people, Christ-centered, God-glorifying people. I pray You'll help us not to fall into moralism, the just-do-it idea or doing it for all the wrong reasons. May we always be motivated by Your glory And may we know that it's only possible that our lives can be cleaned up because of the Gospel of Christ. I pray that You'll bless us. I pray that You'll strengthen us in this church. I pray that You'll unite us together. I pray that we would even grow closer together in our doctrine because there is truth. And there are right views of Scripture, and if you move away from those views, your view is wrong. So I pray, Father, that as we study the Word, that we will come to more truth and therefore we will come closer together in our beliefs. Then may we always exercise charity. And may we have a good knowledge of what things are most essential.
1: May we glorify
0: You in our relationships with each other and our witness to the world. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Mama, you could uh, I need to mention about the building over there. So. Sorry. Um, the power is out in the fellowship hall. So... We're not really going to be able to do a good job with our meal today. Um, Maybe some of you might give me some feedback. You know, can it be done? It's really going to be pretty difficult. We're not going to have power, you know, so we might have a little water, but we might run out of water eventually. Uh, No electricity. The microwave's not going to work. The oven is propane. But uh, my thinking is that, you know, it's probably going to be too difficult to make that work really well. So... uh, I think we're going to postpone that meal for today. I know some of you have brought things with you and whatnot. They called. That's why I stepped up. They gave They we'd probably be 2 to 3 o'clock. Okay. Okay. No, I think uh, we're going to go ahead and postpone the meal for today. It's going to just be too much of a hassle with absolutely no power over there to get this done for today. So... Uh we'll just uh, everyone can do different plans Uh, anyway just wanted to